as we start today, I wanted to start with a confession. And I actually, I'm going to be a little vulnerable for you and hope that you don't judge me too hard. I feel like our church is pretty, pretty generous, pretty grace-filled in this, but I want to talk to you about some of the ways that I watch movies. It's a confession, so don't judge me too hard, okay? I love movies like many of us do. I don't think I'm a movie fanatic by any means. There are certainly people that know much more about movies than I do, but I enjoy movies, especially underdog stories. I love movies underdog stories and frankly and this is where I think you're going to judge me I get really emotional when I watch movies about like some sort of underdog story and you know you think of all the movies out there in the world that have been great over the years that have been about underdog stories I love it when someone overcomes great odds to defeat like some sort of opposition or oppression I love it when somebody beats some sort of thing that holds them down I especially love underdog stories when there's athletics involved And here's my confession. If we ever watch Rocky together, every time Rocky wins the fight, I start to cry. I don't understand why. It's just ingrained in me. And my wife, my family, they make fun of me. It's a dumb boxing movie. If you've never seen it, it's really not that special, but it is to me. And when Rocky wins, like I just, you know, when he beat Mr. T, it was the best. If you know that movie, you know what I'm talking about, right? But I love these underdog stories. And the more kind of classically historic it is, the more it means to me. And there's one underdog story that I actually think is probably one of the best movies, underdog movies, underdog stories, true stories of our lifetimes. And I'm going to read you the line. Before we start the clip, there's going to be a clip today, okay? But I'm going to read you the line, and my family can't name it, Jamie can't name it, but um, if you know the line and you know the movie, shout it out, okay? Ready? Here's the line. Here it comes. The line from this great underdog movie is this, great moments are born from great opportunity. Great moments are born from great opportunity. Does nobody know who this is? Any guesses? It's Herb Brooks. The Miracle. Remember that movie? Oh my goodness, okay. I'm so glad some of you haven't seen this. The Miracle is one of the best movies of all time. In fact, maybe not so, but it's one of the best underdog stories in our lifetime. And it's Literally, on any road trip that our family takes, The Miracle and The Rookie, those movies get played over and over in our, in our family. Let me tell you about the movie The Miracle for a minute. So, in one of the most dramatic upsets in Olympic history, in February 22nd, 1980, some of you weren't born, many of us were, there was the underdog U.S. Olympic hockey team made up of completely college-age players. You follow me? And they entered the Olympic Games. And they were set to face what was widely known as the best Olympic hockey team of that generation. It was back then, it was called the Soviet Union. It was the Soviet Olympic hockey team. And this team had been so good, they hadn't lost a game in the Olympics for over 12 years. They had won the four previous gold medals the Soviets did. And here come this Herb Brooks led, which is a Minnesota-based guy, based college-age students on the Olympic U.S. hockey team, 
and they beat them in what was an amazing, raucous crowd in Lake Placid, New York. And the movie's all about this, and it's an amazing moment in time. It's an underdog story, and it really has defined sports movies across the genre, okay? And it all stems from this one line, great moments are born from great opportunity. And I want you to check this out so you get the breadth of it because it really sets up our conversation today. So with that, Dylan, let's roll the clip. See what I'm talking about? Are you ready to cry right now? I'm like fighting it back. I've got to get over emotional so I don't start crying. When he says, you were born to be hockey players, we're going to shut them down. He looks over the goalie. They're like, yeah, coach, we're in it. We're going to run through a wall for you. I love those underdog stories. And they would go on to win four to two against one of the greatest teams the world had ever seen. I love this scene. And I love what it represents about the power of a moment. I love it when he says that you were born for this. And friends, if I could transition us now, and as a kind of a pastor trick, move us into thinking about the scripture, I would say this. Yes, they were born to be hockey players, and they were made for that moment. But if I apply this to us today, dare I say that you and I were born to follow Jesus. And we were meant to be in this place for this time. We were born to follow Jesus and to be in this place, in this world, in this church, ministering to the people around us for this time. And I think actually that, Jamie, thank you for reading our scripture today from Acts 17, where Paul is embarking on this missionary journey to the Athenians in the Areopagus. I think Paul had that same kind of perspective as well. Paul, on his missionary journeys, looked for great opportunities, great moments where he could see what God was about and jump in. And so we're going to unpack the text today from, from Acts 17. And like we always do, we're going to ask, what do we know about Acts 17? Well, we start with this. <clears throat> this section in Acts really highlights excuse me, <clears throat> the spread of the gospel all the way back to the beginning in Jerusalem. When Jesus told his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples. And he said, start here in Jerusalem, then go to Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. That was what Jesus told his disciples to do. The gospel then started to push further and further out from that epicenter, and people started to believe in the way, in the Jesus way. And in Acts 17, we see now when Paul, on his missionary journeys, enters into a location that would have been probably to some degree extravagant. Paul would have arrived into Athens, this incredible historical city, on his missionary journey, and it probably would have been awesome. He probably would have been like a lot of us would have been. If you've ever been to Athens, I unfortunately have not. I had the chance to go there this past September, but I wanted to be here. We were starting a new chapter. It just wasn't an option. But Athens, when I'm told, is a beautiful city full of incredible architectural, phenomenal buildings. The culture there was amazing. And back in this day, in Paul's day, they were a diplomatic epicenter where there was academic thought and different debate cultures where they would wrestle with incredibly deep truths. And Paul would have walked into the city and probably, like us, been a little bit impressed, but there was something that stopped him from getting there. Paul, when he walked through Athens and toured around, he saw something different. He was actually blown away, the scripture says, by the idol worship around him. He was astounded 
by the magnitude of idolatry. The city was given over to idols, verse 16 says. In Acts 17, verse 16, the city was given over to idols. And because of this, Paul was so disturbed at the idol worship soaked in culture all around him that he was compelled to preach the good news of Jesus right then and right there. He knew that the people in Athens needed the freedom that comes from Jesus. They were slaves to their idols. They were bound by idol worship. And Paul knew in that moment that he must start to preach the good news of Jesus. The people were under this weight of idol worship. I think the word soaked in idol worship fits appropriately. Their entire culture was marked by this characteristic and it did not honor God. Now what's interesting to me is when we read Acts 17 is that we can see similarity in the cultural values of the Greeks, the Athenians in that day, the mindset of the people that Paul was preaching to compared to our world today. It's remarkably similar to what I would call the post-Christian world that we exist in now in much of the United States and globally. Paul actually provides us a model. He provides us an example of how we, as Jesus followers trying to do our best on the journey, ought to care for people in the world who might be far from Jesus, far from the church, present the good news to a community that needs God. You see, the Athenians in Paul's day, they had a, let's call it a complicated relationship with foreign gods. On one hand, the Athenians were famous for incorporating these foreign gods into their halls of God, the gods that they worship. They were very curious and they are very interested if the God that you believed in could actually provide something for them in their context. So they would ask evaluation questions, right? But they were also very protective because they didn't want your God to, to do something that would complicate the rules of their state or the, the culture that they'd worked so hard to live up to. So they would press Paul in their debating Areopagus, kind of in the towns and the synagogues. They would press Paul to understand more about this God that he was talking about. And the question that they were asking was an evaluation question. And it said this, is this God something good for us or not? Is this God something good for us or not? And I think that's a great place to start for us. Because a lot of the people that we know in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, the people we work with, they might be asking a similar question. And to some degree, maybe they've already answered it. Maybe a lot of people that you know that are far from Jesus have already said, you're God, not good for me. And I think as we've seen some of the cultural nuance in today's world, that question, that evaluation question is shifting. And it's changing from, is your God good for me or not, to, is your God beautiful. Is your God beautiful? I mean, think about this for a minute. We live in a world where beauty is all around us. We create beautiful things. In fact, I would say we live in a digital world where people all across the internet, all across social media can present the most beautiful version of their lives that they can come up with. They can edit out any blemish. They can crop any photo. They don't want somebody in it. They crop them right out. And they present something beautiful, right? It's created an, an almost artificial dynamic with people online. And now we're starting to see from the youngest generation, the alpha generation, a movement away from that. Where we're not just trying to present the beautiful version of ourselves, but the real versions of who we are. But I think in culture today, one of the questions 
that people are asking about the church and about the message of the church is, is it beautiful? And it's a fair question. And friends, I would say that the message of the church, and this is my opinion, you feel free to disagree with it, has been anything but beautiful, at least in the public eye, to those that are far from God, far from the church. We, the church, are associated with, at least negatively to those outside the walls of the church, as too engaged in political power. We use language that prescribes an us-and-them reality to many people. Sunday mornings, when as largely Christians meet, is still the most racially segregated moment in the United States. And all along, we continue to see the younger generations leaving the church in droves because we can't figure out how to care for them well. And in all of that, this has been my experience, maybe it's not been yours, we have the short-sightedness to point out the problems of everybody else in our culture rather than to look at our own selves, the body of Christ, those of us that are following Jesus, and ask what ought we do different to reach people for Jesus, to be on mission with God. We sometimes don't see the opportunity that is right in front of us. And friends, do not forget, the gospel is beautiful. It is a message that people need to hear, and I think, frankly, want to hear. Every human being is still compelled by what I think are three distinct, although not new, driving curiosities. Every person is driven by three wonderings. The first one is a question of identity. Who am I? And we figure that question out our entire lives, and we build up our identity around this question. Who am I? Number two is a question of belonging. Where do I fit? Do I belong to you? Do I fit with you with all my baggage, with all my, my, my brokenness, with all my questions? Do I fit? Do I belong to you? And a question number three is a question of purpose. What difference do I make to you? And what difference do I make to this world? Can anything answer these three questions better than the gospel of Jesus Christ? Questions of identity, questions of belonging, questions of purpose. Our challenge then is to learn from Paul in reference to our text today, especially when we think about being gospel ambassadors to the world around us that is soaked in post-Christian thought and culture. And why do we have this conversation today? We start here, and you cannot miss this, because every single person in this world matters to God. We know that because of the biblical reference, right? And therefore, every person must matter to us. And as the ordained church, we get to join God in God's mission to see more disciples among more populations, in a more caring and just world. So how does Paul do it? How does Paul do it in Acts 17 as he's working with a very complicated, highly intelligent, debate culture group of people in the Athenians? Well, the first thing that Paul does, and I think this will be on the screen, is number one, Paul sees. Paul sees. It says in verse 22, Paul says in verse 22, he says this, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. 
It's a short line. It's a simple line. And actually, I think it's a line that we would generally overlook. And yet, in my mind, this is one of the key things that Paul does. He names something that we cannot move past. Paul sees. And for Paul, this is a matter of posture. It's a matter of evangelism. Paul puts himself into a position to be a missionary, an ambassador of the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ in a community that he might not have been very welcome. But Paul, with respect in his voice and just enough reverence for the community around him, was able to posture himself to be heard. He did this by recognizing the truth of the Athenians' worship, but all the while knowing that they were not worshiping the one true God. He led with a respectful recognition of their religious endeavors. He took time to get to know them and to understand where they were coming from, but he never acknowledged that their worship, that those endeavors led to a true saving faith. Paul is telling a simple but limited truth, and he's creating a basis for further dialogue. It's not a bait and switch. That's not what Paul is doing here. It's an authentic posture of seeing the other, of loving somebody else, of caring for them, and giving them the chance to be recognized by us. The first thing that Paul does in reaching the Athenians is he sees them. He acknowledges right where they are. The second thing that Paul does then is he literally says, I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. Verse 23, Paul says, as I walked around, he took the time to walk around and look carefully at their objects of worship. It's interesting, this part of the verse, because to some degree, this ability for Paul to engage culture, and this is another sermon for another time, so don't take too much to this, but it's an indictment on our Christian subculture that we've tried to create. Anytime we've tried to create a Christian subculture in which we can get away from the world and be protected from the evils of the world, it makes me think about this verse. When Paul is actually out in the world ministering to people and he says, for I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. Paul actually in this situation shows great respect and great investment in that which in many ways defined the Athenians. For Paul, this is a matter of a relationship. He established a wise and trusted voice. And friends, it is extremely difficult to establish a relationship unless we acknowledge place and presence and value for anybody in our lives that might be far from God. Paul looked carefully. And looking carefully in our context comes by each of us getting involved in relationship with those that are far from God those that are far from the church, those that carry baggage from the church. And we do this through showing respect for what is important to these wonderful people that God has put in our lives. We show value for that which they value. And we put ourselves in a position to show the beauty of the gospel to those outside the walls of the church. If we want to share the beauty of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with those who are far from God, we must first see them, And secondly, look carefully at the world that they live in. And then the final thing that Paul does is he then proclaims. Following this roadmap, Paul then proclaims in verse 23. Paul says, as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. 
And so you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I'm here to proclaim to you. Now, the Greeks, and some of you know more about this than I do, so I won't try to give any sort of class on Greek mythology or God, the God way that they worship the different gods. But they had dozens and dozens of gods that they worshiped, from Zeus to Athena and many, many more. And yet they were haunted by this one God that they might have missed. And there's a story behind it we won't get into today, but they were worried that they missed some of the gods. So they would make these altars around Athens to an unknown God. And Paul, in his wisdom, finds a connecting point with the Areopagus, with the people that he was talking with. Paul says, you don't know this unknown God, but I do. And what does he say? Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath, and everything else. I love this. With the backdrop of Paul establishing that he acknowledged the world that the Athenians lived in, and furthermore then shows value for them as individuals, and that which they value, he then has the opportunity to proclaim that there is a God. And with that one true God comes beauty, and freedom, and salvation. Now, we should notice that Paul doesn't go into pointing out all the wrong things of the Athenians' worship or their culture, nor does Paul put himself in a position of authority over any of the people there. He instead relates to the Athenians in a way that they could understand and can resonate with. And in all that, he then proclaims that the one true God who is creator and ruler and sustainer of all can be for them as well. Paul does not sacrifice the truth of his faith. He's never theologically inaccurate here. He never sacrifices a truth about Jesus. Rather, he builds an on-ramp, and I've used that phrase with you before. I think it is so critical to the way that we reach our communities. Paul builds an on-ramp for those that are far from God to hear and to see, and maybe they would believe. And if you keep reading in Acts 17, you would find that that day, Many Greeks gave their life to Jesus. There was a great celebration. Paul sees, Paul values, and then Paul proclaims. And in this, he's able to show the beauty of the good news of Jesus. This, my friends, is a great example for us as we try to minister in one of the most complicated times, certainly in our history, if not of all time. Now, many of you know that... Um, I have a long history in youth ministry. And I was doing some math this morning and I was a little disturbed with the math because uh, my first year as a professional youth worker was in 1993. So that's almost, is that almost 30 years? That seems wrong. I'm still 25, just so you know. And uh, I'm not going to get any older. So, but I've been doing youth ministry for a long time. I've served in many of our local contexts from, I served a, a wonderful church in Canada. We've served in Arvada, Colorado, we served here in the Twin Cities, West Michigan, Kansas City. Great years of doing youth ministry in wonderful communities, complicated communities, wonderful teenagers, such a great gift. 
Uh, for the last eight years, I've served the covenant denomination as the servant and leader of the youth ministry movement in the covenant. We have like 900 covenant churches in North America. So I got to buzz around and kind of encourage the leaders and, and just, it was so much fun. Youth ministry has changed my life, right? It's been a huge part of what I've, I've had the opportunity to be a part of uh, for now almost the last 30 years, which seems remarkable to me. But you know what? Um, this whole construct of youth ministry is sort of a new thing. And if you look back at the history of youth ministry or any formal um, uh, ministry formational dynamics in the church, you've got to go back to just post-World War II and World War II when the boomers were uh, booming. Okay, In the 50s and 60s, there was a whole new class of Americans Right, And this was more than just in America. It was a global dynamic. There was a whole new class of people that we started to call the adolescents. That term that we take for granted nowadays, that only started in the 1960s when there were so many boomers that they needed to know how do we organize this community, this so many people, and it had a massive impact on culture. It was changing culture. Literally, it felt like overnight, this beautiful boomer generation. There were so many of them, the baby boom after World War II. And every organization was trying to figure out how do we care for the adolescents. And of course, adolescence at the time was like 13 to 18. Now it's like 10 to 30, by the way. That's another sermon for another day, right? But when adolescence started, we were truly talking about teenage years. And it started a whole new class of people. Now, from a historical standpoint, you need to know this. The church at that time struggled. They struggled to meet the demands of the changing landscape of the emerging generation and this cultural shift. Why does the church struggle with those things? Because we don't change fast. We change very slow. And that's always been who we are. We love our traditions. We love the brick and mortar of our foundation of our faith. And we don't adapt well to the cultural shifts. And the church back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was struggling. The shifting culture Actually, everybody hear this, because it's very similar to today. It caused widespread panic to those who were overreacting to the threat of the shift in culture and the threat on the institution, the church. It was a difficult time for the church to know how they should engage in this rapidly changing culture. And up walks Billy Graham. Up walks Billy Graham. You remember Billy Graham, right? And what did Billy Graham do? He got some like-minded people together and they dreamt and they prayed and they started two parachurch ministries, one called Young Life and the other called Youth for Christ. They were both started by Billy Graham. And they began ministering to unchurched adolescents with a focus to guide teenagers to Bible-believing church, churches. And the Holy Spirit was clearly up to something because they had massive success. Thousands and thousands and thousands of teenagers gave their life to Christ and started following Jesus because of the work of Young Life and Youth for Christ. So with the wild success of Reverend Graham's youth movement, that's when the church began to respond by hiring staff ministers to do youth ministry. So that became the modern movement. And I, I would just say this, I'm a little biased. I don't think there's anything that's really impacted the growth of the church in North America and maybe in the Western world in general than the effort of caring through the family. And I know we could probably talk a lot about music and the shift from the old style music to the new style music, very important as well. 
but of course I'm biased as a career youth worker that I think the investment to the family, God has used to build the church. It was a massive cultural shift that people felt threatened by, and yet it was a great opportunity that turned into a great moment. The remarkable thing about this history that we just talked through is that I think we face a very similar situation today. There is a shift in culture that I feel threatened by, that we've talked about this, we feel threatened by as a church. And certainly the institution of the church globally feels threatened by the shift in culture, this post-Christian dynamic. But like Billy Graham, we have the ability to step into this great opportunity and pray that God makes it a great moment. And how is this for you? How is this for you in your life individually as Jesus has called you to the community that you're a part of, your neighborhood that you live in, the friendships that you have, the colleagues that you work with? How is this for you individually? Do we follow individually Paul's lead? Do we see people? Do we value them? Then do we proclaim the good news of Jesus? Do we love them into the kingdom? And what about for us as a church? We are in a pivotal moment right now as a congregation. You've been there for several years, right? New City Covenant Church has been through a lot the last several years, and yet here we are still standing. God is still doing something great. What a joy it is to be a part of this place in that moment. But we stand in the doorway of a great opportunity, friends. Make no mistake about it. We are in this month where Jamie mentioned it. We've been praying together this month. We've been praying for each other, praying for our kids, and we're praying for the future of this church. We're praying that God would give us wisdom. And so I just want to add three things that are not in your prayer guide because I put this together after that was published. Three things I want to add to ask you to pray for this church and how you can participate in it, that you can add this to your prayer guide. They're easy to remember. You don't necessarily need to write them down, but here they are. Number one, I want to ask that you would pray for revival. I don't ask for this very often because I'm not super charismatic. And when we think about revival, we instantly go to charismatic dynamics. Listen, we need to pray for revival. And here's how I think we ought to pray for revival. There are hundreds and hundreds of people in our lives represented by the people in this room that are carrying major baggage. They're broken and they're hurt because of the church. The church has broken them. I don't know what their story is. I mean, we could tell probably many, many stories of that. But we need to pray that God would revive something in their hearts that is beautiful and God-ordained that God would bring healing, that there would be a revival in their lives. And that, friends, he would use New City Covenant Church, this church, to be a welcoming and refreshing community for people to enter into. The first thing I want to ask you to do is pray for revival. The second is to pray for a new movement of God. A new movement of God. That those around us in our neighborhoods would experience the breathless wonder of following Jesus even at Edina High School. In the neighborhoods on the other side of the roundabout, right? In the neighborhoods across the freeway that there'd be a new movement of God here in Edina, beyond in the Twin Cities. And for those of you watching online, you know I'm talking about your communities too. That there'd be a new movement of God. And that God would use New City to bring that about. And the third thing I would like to ask you to pray for is for unity. Pray for unity. Satan will certainly do whatever he can to divide us. He's already been working on it 
so hard across the church. We need to pray for unity. We need to link arms, stay in it when it gets hard, and ask God to do abundantly more. So how are you praying? And what opportunity is in front of you even right now? God has put someone in your life that you have the opportunity to proclaim the good news of Jesus to. The church, listen, I'm going to finish with this. I know you're ready to eat. I need to tell you this, okay? The church doesn't have a mission. We get this mixed up all the time. The church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church. The mission has a church. This is Jesus' mission to the world, and we have the honor and responsibility of partnering with Christ. I firmly believe that God wants to use New City Covenant Church to be a place of hope and encouragement and of good discipleship where we pursue the heart of Jesus in a place that always points to the glory of God the Father in heaven. May that be true of this church. May it be true of each of us in our lives. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. In Acts 17, it is just so good. I love watching the way Paul interacts with people, that he always had the big picture in mind. Paul always had the long view in mind. He knew that your spirit was up to something, and he delighted in participating in these complicated moments. God, it is difficult to be the church right now. It is hard. And we don't have all the answers. I certainly don't. And if anybody pushes me for all the answers, I'm not sure what I could say, except, Lord, that your spirit is doing amazing things still today in the lives of people, that you're still healing people, that you're still winning people for you. So Father, I want to pray that you would use this church in our lives to bring your name glory. May it never be about us, but always about you. We think about those people in, in our world right now, Father, that you've called us to. Give us a chance this week to share the love of Jesus. And Father, would everything we do here point to you. We look forward to being together downstairs to eat a meal with one another. Would you bless that food? to our bodies. Bless the hands that prepared it. And I pray even, Lord, as we pack these wonderful, precious gifts at Operation Christmas Child Gifts, that as they go out and bless little children all around the world, that the message of hope in Jesus would go to those kids as well. We pray these things, Lord, with hope and expectation in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen and amen.